Hello, everyone, and welcome to In the Pit, a Yale School of Architecture Paprika podcast. You're listening to a brand new live miniseries entitled Lost Rituals Storytelling. This podcast aims to elevate the power of storytelling and pedagogy, a long-held tradition that's often erased in Western scholarship. I'm your host, Sosa Erebor, and Sydney Mulbert, my usual host, is traveling with her studio today, but she'll be back for episode two. Today, I am joined by the amazing MR Kwan and my friend, Endo Sunoje. Thank you for joining me today, Endo. And usually we have music provided by Timothy Hawking, and it will be on the recording. This is episode one, Path. Mabel Wilson, Ife Vanable, and Karis Armstrong are here to talk about black history, erasure, exposure, and fetishization. We are so grateful to the three of you for coming here today. Five black women on the carpet, probably the first time this has happened. It feels poetic, uh, a moment in time. Right, because Mabel Wilson, as an architectural historian, represents the pedagogy's past and has published one of the most prominent pieces of black architectural literature, Race and Modern Architecture. Doctoral candidate, Ife Vanable, is also an architect, historian, and theorist but she closes the dichotomy between pedagogy and practice, so she represents the present, while Karis, Sosa, and I represent the optimistic future as students. So it's a wonderful moment to have all, us all become datums in time, woven together through spoken word, through storytelling. So I'm sure my guests need no introduction, but just in case you need to be caught up, we have Mabel O. Wilson, who is trained in architecture and American studies, two fields that inform her scholarship, curatorial projects, artworks, and design projects. She's a professor of architecture, African-American and African diasporic studies, and the director of the Institute for Research in African-American Studies at Columbia University. At GSAP, she co-directs the Global Africa Lab, and through her practice, Studio Anne, her research investigates space, politics, cultural memory in black America, race and modern architecture, new technologies, and the social production of space. She's written many acclaimed books which we'll go into into this podcast. Eve Vanable is an architect, historian, and theorist who holds professional and post-professional degrees in architecture from Cornell and Princeton universities. She is a PhD candidate in architectural history and theory at Columbia University GSAP, where she recently joined the faculty for the spring 2021 semester, teaching an advanced architectural studio alongside architecturally trained visual artist Amanda, Amanda Williams. Ife is also the founder of Life and leader of Bronx-based architectural workshop and think tank, I Van Abel. Lastly, she is the Yale School of Architecture 2021-2022 visiting scholar. And last but certainly not least, we have Karis Armstrong, my brilliant close and personal friend and colleague. She graduated from U University of Virginia in 2017 with honors. Her undergraduate thesis highlighted the future effects of climate-driven flooding on underprivileged communities in East Boston and proposed a plan of action for redesigning the most vulnerable housing typologies over time, alongside its community members. She's also Ife Vanable's TA this semester, so there's a really nice connection between all of the guests. And so now that we've read your brief synopsis of your resume, 
We want to know, what is your story and how do you define yourself? And to follow up those questions, how did you find your specific nuance within architectural history? This is open to all. Mabel, you want to go first? I'll let you answer first. <laughs> <laughs> You're the present? <laughs> For the present. I know Mabel, Mabel's my advisor, also my dissertation advisor, so we're all deeply linked. We're all linked. We're all deeply yeah. connected. Um, I mean, I would say I've, I've defined myself in, in many ways, uh, not in any singular uh, way. Uh, I'm a Bronxite from the Bronx, New York, born and raised. I'm a mother of three now, um, and a scholar, and a thinker, a seeker. Um, I probably define my sort of historical um, nuance, as you call it, which I like uh, very much, in a way that I would probably describe as, as autobiographical. Uh, doctoral studies, many people say, and I've repeated myself many times, that is autobiographical in nature. And the work that I pursue uh, in thinking and looking at the development of high-rise residential towers in New York City in the 70s uh, comes out of my lived experience in many ways and my own uh, curiosities in many ways about tall buildings in New York. And the 70s, though I was not born in the 70s, close to them, um, have been a very sort of, uh, ex sort of ex really sort of deeply um, engaging moment in history for myself in thinking about New York and thinking about the development of housing and in thinking about narratives that run counter to prevailing ones about the Bronx at that particular moment in particular. When a space like the Bronx was defined as burning in that moment, it's also a moment out of which a huge body of architectural development happens simultaneously. And sort of thinking about those contradictions are the things that really pepper my work. And so I would say it's you know, very much an autobiographical driven project, but one that's fundamentally curious. That's fantastic, Aoife. I'm just, as you're from the Bronx, I'm a girl from Jersey. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> and yeah, I completely agree with Aoife that, you know, the work is actually very autobiographical and it's what drives um, the kinds of questions that you ask. And certainly for me, the questions that I ask in my work came out of my own education. And part of it was just not seeing my own experience reflected in my architectural education and trying to wonder maybe two things. Why was it absent? And what was that experience? And, and why should it be relevant? And I feel like that's sort of what I've um, been trying to do, you know, all of these, I, I won't give it a number, but a long time, <laughs> decades. And it's, you know, it's required stitching together, you know, a range of skills across disciplines, you know, in, in order to be able to kind of articulate that and to make kind of make sense both of the present moment and the various ways in which we try to understand the world that we're in. But all of that is completely informed by a past and by a formation of history that excludes, excludes black life um, for a reason. 
even though that black life clearly has made the present world possible, it makes modernity possible, um, but also given that architecture is such a projective, um, uh, prospective discipline, right, that, that claims the future as a kind of site of possibility, you know, h- how do we kind of make, like what, what are, how do we imagine those black worlds, especially given that they are absent from the discourses and disciplines often from which we certainly study the built environment, unless one broadens that to literature and poetry and music and art and, and so on. So that's a bit about kind of my story. Thank you, Mabel. And yeah, I was just thinking, I think this is the first time I've ever been asked to define myself. So um, personally, I think um, within architecture, at least, I try to represent um, maybe people who find themselves outside of the norm. Um, just the way that I've been raised and the educational systems I've been raised in um, were always kind of countercultural. So um, coming to an institution like Yale or even being at an institution like University of Virginia, where there's a very strong pedagogy and a very strong impression of the forms and types of architecture that they um, proliferate, um, trying to find what is outside of that norm and how to represent it as a young woman in architecture, especially a young woman of color, um, mainly. So um, I think for myself, at least, it leads to me wanting to be inquisitive and empathetic towards um, just different forms of life that I'm not accustomed to, and I feel like um, architecture has really given me the biggest um, ability to impact the world in a positive way with um, my experience as someone who's found themselves outside of that norm. That's so interesting. Thank you, Karis. And it's really great to see the line that is drawn between the three of you through mentorship, through being black women here mm-hmm. at Yale. Um, and then that will lead us into our first question after your stories with Endos. So this question's open to everyone, but Mabel, we are especially interested in your thoughts as it relates to your book, Negro Building, and the depiction of blackness in the world fairs. It seems like the depiction of blackness is always washed over or just omitted. What is it? What are your thoughts on negative subjectivity and how it relates to the objectification and fetishization of blackness in American society? What does it mean to empathize with black bodies and histories? Yeah, I think that's a really pertinent and important question, um, you know, because I would say, I, you know, as, as Stars knows, and yeah, I, I also went to UVA, <laughs> and um, that given the way in which architecture, certainly when I was a student, was so, so configured around someone like Thomas Jefferson, literally his figure is enshrined everywhere and in everything, um, you know, that there was a way in which the discipline was marked white, male, and heteronormative. Um, And that's what we learned. Those were the historians we read. Those were the people who are on our review. I mean, that's what, and, and, you know, when you don't see yourself or your own experiences reflected in that, you know, there is that sense of alienation, right? And that, that is a product of blackness. That's the way in which blackness is imagined and the way in which um, we are marked by that, by that blackness, which is invented, right? Whiteness is also invented. Um, you know, our ancestors, um, some of them, you know, direct came from, from, from Africa, you know, and they had traditions and ways of being in the world and knowledge systems that, you know, were abruptly terminated um, when they became property, when they became objects and things, you know, brought in the space of the hold and into that space 
um, of New World's uh, chattel slavery, right? And that blackness produces a kind of devaluation, right? That allows for fungibility and exchangeability um, between, you know, money and these bodies and how they, they're moved around. And that's a very violent process, but also it strips, you know, um, people of their humanity and their humanness uh, in order to produce, you know, that, that line on the ledger, you know, that many of our ancestors occupied, right? And so, you know, trying to come to terms with that, but also understanding, for me, it was important to understand how architecture as the European art of building and the, the, the body of knowledge that we learn emerges in that same world. Um, and not that people don't build and they do, different ways and in different methods around the world that are all interconnected and shared, architecture is a specifically Western discipline. And it's completely entangled with those philosophies and ways of working. You know, and so as we learn this discipline, you know, that's why, you know, to some degree, blackness remains a kind of in, invisible presence, right? Or that architecture cannot serve our, our needs to some extent because it was never meant to allow us to thrive as humans because we're not human um, in so many respects. Um, I'm teaching tomorrow Kevin Quashie's Black Aliveness, which just came out, um, and also Jennifer Morgan's Reckoning with Slavery. One's a philosophy, one's a, you know, and they, they talk about that problematic of, of blackness and its negation, right? But I do think what architecture offers us is a space of imagination. It allows us to understand places of black life, right? And as Kwashi would say, black aliveness. And for me, that's been a really important resource for you know, how I, I do the work that I do. And if anybody else wants to chime in, you're totally free. Um, but if this field is inherently white, what do you think we are doing here? And do you think we should be here? I think that's the question that kind of was struck in my mind listening to Mabel speak just now. Um, if this is such an ingrained part of architecture, um, should blackness seek to work within it or should it create something new for itself? Maybe it's creating something new for itself within the existing structures and um, what does that look like in practice? Um, if you're using the tools of the oppressor, like what does that look like in a considered practice of architecture? I think it's, yeah, like, going off of what Kara said, like, I think it's very um, an important subject matter, like, whether or not, like, where we can find our place within this, um, within this pedagogy, within this um, profession. And I think it also goes back to, like, some of these references from Negro building and how um, African-Americans' contribution to the built environment was always, like, in a temporal manner, especially when it came to these exhibits and the world fairs. And I think, in a way, like, we can find ways to kind of, I was wondering, like, how could we find ways to have our um, staple within this, I guess, profession and practice that's not just tempor temporary, but also keeps the longevity of our histories and what, me what we bring meaning to and what mean means a lot to us. Right. And I tack on to that question asking what you all think is missing foundationally in architectural education. And if you think it's important for us to spend time to find other prehistories, because oftentimes we're taught that it starts with antiquity, and antiquity is this lineage of Western thought. 
Um, and Mabel, you are in the African Global Lab, and Ife, you're Nigerian like me. What does that mean for us to incorporate different histories that are kind of hard to find into our field? I, I'm, I'm blessed with the Nigerian name, but I'm not Nigerian. Um, I, I know. <laughs> um, I, am, I am so blessed with this name, though. Uh, it deeply shaped my personality from childhood. Um, but I am a black American, born and raised uh, in New York. My grandparents were born in New York. My dad's side, my paternal grandparents. Um, and one thing that I would say in particular also about um, Mabel's book, which I think is so important, Negro Building, is about the ways that it refuses questions of inclusivity and starts to talk about the ways in which blackness finds its own sites to see itself, to tell its own stories. And I think that that's critically important. Um, I was in a review or a, a sort of symposium the other day where the basis of the sort of symposium were around questions of inclusivity. And I re responded in a way to a question about sort of inclusion of, of black folks into the profession about a sort of suspicion that I hold towards a discourse around inclusion and whether or not the answer is merely to just add more black faces or to add more black stories and whether or not there are sites that refuse mere inclusion into an already problematic space of interrogation, pedagogy, training, uh, curriculum, production practices, um, and whether or not we can attend to the ways in which blackness has always and already presented itself to itself. So how do we, in a space like this, like institutional regimes, like Yale's, uh, other institutional spaces of architectural production, find ways to present ourselves to ourselves? I would say this: what you're doing right now with Paprika, for example, does that not necessarily looking or attending to the white gaze or attending to being seen by white normative structures of representation, but instead is finding spaces to produce otherwise narratives where in which we're looking at one another, we're seeing each other, we're hearing each other's voices. And I think that that's critically important. I think often about the work of someone like Kevin Young. I look to literature a lot. I look to poetics and, poetic and poetry quite a bit. And I think about his gray album on the blackness of blackness a lot. And I think about um, also um, architecture in black, Darrell Wayne Fields, architecture in black. And the question of whether or not architecture is so truly deeply estranged from blackness and whether or not blackness can really be understood as constitutive of the sort of production of architectural knowledge, the production of modernity. At its core, really blackness is, is totally central. It's invisibilized, but it's totally central. And that tension, that contradiction between being highly visible, this sort of hyper-visibility that even someone like Saidiya Hartman talks about, versus a sort of invisibilized presence. How do you make something totally central and present while simultaneously work towards its erasure? And I think that's where blackness often exists in sort of fields of architectural production, knowledge production, um, questions of practice and pedagogy. So fundamentally for me, it's about not including more, but finding ways to disrupt those paradigms, 
finding ways to disrupt those containers, those epistemological containers, those housings. Uh, find ways to think about what happens in the hold outside of the view of the gaze, for example. What are the knowledges that are produced and shared within that territory, within those confines? How are they uh, refused? How are they um, sort of conflicted with? How are they explored and dealt with within those limits, within those confines as well? Thank you, thank you, Ife. And I wasn't sure if maybe wanted to jump in on this question as well, or if not, we can continue. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would just add, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think Ife's uh, right about questioning, you know, projects of inclusion, right? Inclusion to what? <laughs> it's the, and why were we excluded to begin with, right? And so that's that's the question. And I think, so if, if, if it's about, you know, bringing more people in, it doesn't necessarily change the power dynamics because that's really, you know, what racial, racialization, racial thing, you know, however you want to name it, um, racism, it produces hierarchies of both power and value. Um, so if you're at the top, you do fine. Everything just works for you perfectly, but you can't see the cost of those at the bottom, right, who are outside or excluded. Um, and it, it, it costs um, it costs lives. I shared with my studio because we're doing a studio called Post Plantation Futures, and we're taking Catherine McKittrick's um, essay of um, post plantation and the way in which she says like, nah, the plantation as a kind of model um, that is both cultural and economic continues with us today. Um, and, you know, we're trying to, to understand, you know, even in New York City, how is a plantation logic still deeply embedded in MoMA, the MoMA complex, in Hudson Yards, in, you know, um, uh, the metropolitan um, uh, prison complex known as the Tombs, um, Central Park, like these logics persist. Um, but what they also do is that that dehumanization costs lives. And so what I shared with them was a New York Times um, article maybe a, a week ago, a couple of weeks ago. It's, it was a hard read about um, the mortality of black Americans uh, in 2019. And they show us, okay, if black people died at the same rate of white people, this is what it would look like. But clearly we don't. We die at a much higher rate. And they literally graphed the difference and they show the difference in red. That is Orlando Patterns, Patterson's social death. When Christina Sharp says we live in the wake, that's what we live in the wake of, right? That systemic racism is murderous. White supremacy is murderous. It kills, right? Because of the way in which it devalues life by absorbing all of the resources. And so, so white life thrives. And I mean white in quotes, if you, 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 you position yourself within a regime of whiteness. Um, because it doesn't necessarily mean that you, 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 you can't be black and completely buy into whiteness, right? Um, but it comes at a cost. It comes at a cost of, of, of human life. And I think that arithmetic, um, you know, is, is devastating. And so, and I think architecture is sort of com complicit in terms of how it constructs a world. Well, you know, redlining was a perfect logic of that, right? of valuation and grading of literal neighborhoods where monies can be invested in grade A and disinvested in grade D. And if you look at um, the COVID maps, for example, in New York City, 
where was grade D? Where, whatever, you know, many places that were grade D that haven't yet gentrified, that was where you would find a concentration of COVID death, right? So, you know, so it, it's, it's deeply entrenched. So in, inclusion isn't going to change the more structural apparatus um, that produces value, you know, of life and devaluation and death. Sorry to be a bit of a downer, but <laughs> that that is the system and how it how it works. No, I mean, oh, I was just gonna say on the topic of it being a downer, I feel like um, we're in a really opportune moment now within architecture, where a lot of those taboos and things that were understood and unspoken are now at least finding voice in a way that we can maybe casually discuss these in public and have them understood and read. So I feel like. I'm glad that we're in this place where we can discuss this downer in a very public manner. Um, I think my question would be like, how do we avoid this taboo once again becoming um, the norm maybe and um, something that is spoken about but never really acted upon? Uh, maybe as like an ad hoc question, do you feel like there's any way that we can avoid this um, initial shock of speaking about the taboo in a public realm um, of that becoming common and um, losing that shock value that um, stirs people to action? I mean, I think, and I think Aoife can also speak on this, and I would love to hear what you guys think. And, um, you know, in, in the aftermath of George Floyd, there were a lot of statements coming out. Um, you know, corporations, institutions were all speaking in solidarity. And I just think a lot of folks were like, no, you're not really in solidarity because the statement says one thing, but your actions and your, the way in which your power is institutionalized does something else. And I think um, I felt I was being asked a lot to explain um, my oppression, uh, being interviewed, like, what is it like being black and being oppressed? And what is it, what's it like as an architect? And I was just like, nah, I got 30 years worth of work on that topic. Just, just read, <laughs> just look at the work. And I, was, I just realized, like, you're not asking the right question. The question that I wanted answered was, what are you going to do about white supremacy? How are you going to name it, be comfortable with it, because it produces a whole lot of comfort for you and a good life, um, and be able to discuss openly what it allows and, and what it disallows. And I think, you know, we as faculty at GSET wrote Unlearning Whiteness in response to that. It was like, we don't want to hear what you tried to do 50 years ago, because clearly it didn't work. And one of the things that didn't work, that the inclusion, you know, was tried, affirmative action was tried. We, it didn't work because whiteness wasn't dismantled. It rearticulated itself into a whole other regime of violence and oppression, right? Um, perhaps mass incarceration was, it may be across the board understood as more systemic and brutal than lynching, quite frankly. So I think there was a response that was like, we're, we're done with the verbiage, we want action. Now, a year later, it's a question of like, how much is really budged? And it seems to be, it's so entrenched that, you know, it could be the system implodes or explodes or who, who knows. But. I, I felt certainly with, with un, when, we, when we posed to our colleagues unlearning whiteness, and we didn't just say, you know, you got to do this. We said it's an intellectual project, it's a pedagogical project, and it's an institutional project. Um, and, you know, these are some of the reasons why this is important. And it's been a year since that, you know, that has been undertaken. And I know, you know, the Black Student Alliance did something similar. So I'd be, love to hear what Eva thought about that moment as well. And also what you guys experienced in that moment. 
it was a it was an interesting moment in many ways because there were a lot of conversations about sort of statements made to institutional power and letters made to schools. So when the Black Student Alliance, for example, wrote on the futility of listening, it was almost a sort of call to action to ourselves in a way, that it was a letter to the institution, to the dean, to the faculty, um, to the sort of institutional apparatus of the school, but in many ways it was also for us to sort of think about the fact that the answers don't always come from the institution. You know, that we're not necessarily looking to that framework to provide the answers to this particular moment. And in the year and to thereafter, I've heard a lot of people use a lot of language, a lot of verbiage. People are, are attempting to take on the language, the sort of discourse of a moment of sort of so-called racial reckoning where you have deans at schools being able to use the language that seems as though it is aligned with interests that are held by and in support of black lives, black lives and black life and black living. But it is exactly what you are asking about the actions. And for me, it's the not spectacular actions, but the mundane, seemingly banal actions, the everyday work that has to be done in redeveloping coursework and syllabi, in imagining otherwise modes of considering how we design and practice and think and write and read. That work, that ongoing work, what Mabel just mentioned, that sort of intellectual project, I think there's a great deal of resistance to and beginning to create frameworks for thinking otherwise. I think there still is a great deal of resistance to that it's easy to sort of adopt language, it's easy to make statements, but to do the ongoing work of thinking with critical ideas, thinking with curiosity, working through imagination. Ruha Benjamin says like imagination is a contested territory because we're often held in someone else's imagination. How do we begin to reimagine, to think otherwise, to also to remember? that there have been ongoing projects, that there have been ongoing modes of liberatory practice that have not been seen, have not had an eye on them, but have been continuously always and already doing work and imagining other ways of living and thinking. So how do we remember those things? How do we recall those practices, those traditions? How do we enable those things to influence the work that we do? How do we look to other influences? How do we ask architectural pedagogy and design studio pedagogy, seminar and critical and history and theory seminars to think about other ways of practicing and producing knowledge? I think that's where we're at is continuing to push that intellectual project and the depth and nuance in that project. So that blackness is not just only circumscribed by oppression, it's not only understood as a subjugated, a subjugated reality, but is able to be seen as multidimensional and nuanced and with greater depth. Okay, then how do you balance the idea of everyday actions and it's important with larger memorials? Karis, Mabel, and I Ooh. all went to UVA, <laughs> and I think for every all of us in undergrad, you learn propaganda. You learn... <laughs> what you should say, what you should do. And I think us especially, having Thomas Jefferson be 
our hero at UVA or forced to be our hero at UVA. We're kind of um, taught American cultural propaganda, not just architectural propaganda. Uh, mm -hmm. And then Mabel did this amazing memorial to enslaved laborers recently that I think means a lot to me as a student. And Karis, I'd love to hear your thoughts about, I guess in hindsight, seeing that uh, memorial there and balancing the importance of memorial and everyday actionable activities that break down white supremacy. Mm -hmm. I think um, it was kind of funny on our first day here at Yale, um, one of the first lectures I think in our modern history, um, they highlighted the lawn and the academical village and you and I just kind of like were messaging on chat because it was all Zoom at the time. We were just like, oh my goodness, he's followed us here. Like there's no escaping Jefferson. But um, I think um, as a student, I don't know um, if you remember Mabel, but I actually um, attended, well, I guess you would remember the meeting. It was a community meeting back in January 2017 with um, community members in Charlottesville um, at the Jefferson School downtown. And I remember you and your colleagues presenting the different um, iterations of the memorial at the time. And um, I think what struck me the most was the discussion among the um, participants that was, we're trying to locate the names of those who have been lost and people who are lost to time. Essentially, um, I think that impact for me of seeing the intention um, that was being taken on by architects to tell the stories of those who would otherwise be um, unheard and bringing them to the fore on a smaller scale within um, UVA and even on a larger scale, like in DC, where we've seen the National Museum of African American Culture and History, um, seeing those things brought to life by architects was um, at least set my resolve as someone within the practice to um, feel that that is our position, at least. Um, maybe we were not so much um, city builders as we were at one point, but the impact of our um, voices for our smaller voices within the community or people who are generally unheard um, made an impact. So I feel like it set a tone that um, our role is something of a, of a megaphone. So that, that was my impact at least of what I saw um, coming from UVA especially. Yeah, no, Jefferson like haunts. <laughs> That's why I'm writing all the stuff about Jefferson. It's like exercising his presence. But I, but I think again, he stands as a model of enlightenment of enlightenment genius, right? Like of, you know, that, that, that knowledge can be known by the singular ind individual, right? And has a certain kind of, um, you know, a kind of presence, right? And, and, you know, he gets enshrined, and, you know, and he understood that, like he was an obsessive archivist and note taker and ledger maker, you know, everything was, was literally on the, in the table that he was collecting. And, you know, he was trying to organize a world from his pr perspective you know, that the, the, the Europe saw as universal. This is how everyone in the world should does, should see the world because how we see the world is superior. Um, even though there are other many ways of being in the world and knowing the world, right? And he's just, you know, he I think he repre re represents a model of both humanness and subjectivity, you know, that I, I can say is just highly problematic. Um, and we, especially as black women, as not being male and also not being white, are just completely configured outside, you know, and our position within those ledgers as those who, as Virginia Law um, said, and this is Sally Hemings experience, that if you give birth to a child, doesn't matter if you're marked as a black woman, your child is enslaved. So your child is property and not human, right? 
Um, and, and, and so we're sort of like doubly X'd out of like, you know, subjectivity, modern subjectivity in that way. And so for me, black feminists have offered a really amazing Hortense Spillers, Idea Hartman, you know, like ways of beginning to think through and work, work through that. And I think, you know, that was the challenge of the, the memorial to some extent, like how do you rehumanize a community that has been erased, you know, and of course it was erased. They were erased when they were alive. Jefferson put them behind those beautiful, um, you know, serpentine walls. So they weren't going to be seen. He used the section to, to, to hide them, right? Um, as he does in Monticello. Um, and yet the university didn't, couldn't have been built and didn't work without their labor, right? And without their, not, not just their production, but their reproduction. Um, and I think that, you know, that was a huge challenge of the project. But what was remarkable for me always about that project is that students, Ishraga El-Tahir is the person who got that project rolling in a class taught by our collaborator, our other design team, Frank Dukes. And Frank Dukes's class was, whoa, wait, slavery's not, oh, we live in the wake of slavery, right? What does this mean today for how people are paid, where people live, right? Um, and that, as a design team, was always in the forefront, that the memorial wasn't about forgetting the past, but understanding its pressure on our present so that we can actually make a better future. And for me, that, that was important in, in, in how we worked collectively and collaboratively on the memorial. As yesterday, we did a, I just want to say yesterday we did a talk at um, Washington University in St. Louis. So it was Frank, Mijin Yoon, Eric Howler, um, Greg Bleem and Edo Otatigbe, so it was our, our entire design team. And, and that usually blows people's minds anyway, because usually it's the, the architect talking about what I did. And actually, <laughs> you know, we were all involved at all stages of the project. We each had our own special, but we really collectively worked on the project. And, you know, Mijin described it as a kind of hive. You know, we, ha we had this sort of hive mind in terms of, you know, like you can't look at one part of the Mori and say, I did that, because it was actually a kind of collective project of, thinking through and designing. I was just gonna say that what I think is so amazing in the way that you hold the idea of the memorial and the daily, the banal, in our heads simultaneously and in our practices simultaneously is attending to this ongoing nature of the work that has a sort of before before, the sort of preconditions of the moment, the sort of histories of the moment, but to be able to memorialize is the act of a sort of ongoing living with that the memorial enables, that it's sort of spatial reality on that site means that it has to be lived with and that it has to be attended to as opposed to erasing it, as opposed to eliminating it, as opposed to relegating it to a kind of history, but imagining history as a sort of ongoing lived with experience is I think what enables the memorial and the sort of banal to be held simultaneously. That it's part of a ritualized daily living with that enables it to resonate. And, and its physicality, its spatial presence is what makes that even more enduring. And maybe that's what made um, the African-American laborers or the memorial to enslaved laborers so special is that it was a signal that was very public maybe on part of the university and even um, speaking about DC and the National Museum of African American <laughs> History and Culture um, that also 
um, at least in a public way, signifying a stance that we're willing to take as a society, mm -hmm. or at least that we're willing to project that we're taking um, in the movement that you're trying to orient everyone in. So um, whether it's actually borne out is, I think, something that um, we'll have to facilitate ourselves. But yeah, I think it, it for the first time, at least on the part of the, Uni of the United States and um, the University of Virginia, mm -hmm. I feel like they both stood as like a stake in the ground. And then going off into what both of you, all of you guys are saying, I think um, it kind of relates to one of the questions we have here about um, May Wilson, your lecture from the oppressed and how you bring up Cheryl Harris and her book titled Harris and her book titled Whiteness as Property. And I think it relates to Ife's work in a lot of ways and how Ife questions ownership and its relation to policy, public housing, and private development. And it kind of made me think about this current um, issue that we see with the renter dilemmas and which is like the cycle of ownership that is halted because a family or person stuck in this loop of renting mm -hmm. and I found this connection of ownership of land and its representational significance that it holds on African Americans in particular interesting due to the um, historical and legal um, commodifications of blackness and how blackness is always seen in this idea of just being owned and not having ownership of their own spaces. So I thought um, my main question was, well, the main question I really had was, what are the ethics of policy and ownership as it relates to black people? And then um, how do we see maintenance and care in today? And how do we create maintenance and care? <laughs> I know, I'm trying, I'm trying to like un unmute and I can't even unmute. <laughs> Do you want to start, Eva? Sure, sure. Um, I, was, I was intrigued by this question in many ways, this relationship of um, ownership as an ideal to the notion of being sort of trapped and contained in a sort of renter's logic. So I'm, I'm, I'm torn in a way because I, I want us to be able to think in a way that enables us to think beyond property, projects that many other sort of architectural scholars have been uh, contending with. How do we think beyond sort of capitalist logics of ownership and think beyond property as a primary ideal for civilized human life, you know, that we must own land or own property or own a home in order to survive and thrive. So how can we simultaneously think beyond property while also attending to the ways that black folks have been uh, sort of subjugated and uh, exploited under regimes that constantly extract the logics of, you know, sort of rent in urban areas are such that they are totally extractive where black folks often would pay double, triple, quadruple the amount of rent for a space, you know, more than half the size of, you know, a site that someone else elsewhere was able to own outright, those considered white. Uh, the sort of exploitative practices of subdividing homes so that they could be, you know, rented by multiple families and uh, essentially create the wealth base for 
an exploitative landowner or homeowner. So fundamentally, it's, it's not necessarily enabling black folks for me to sort of buy into that practice of owning. But how do we think of dismantling that ideal, ownership as an ideal altogether? It's interesting in, in the work that I've started doing on housing in New York, there are people I've come across who said that they were like an apartment person. It's a very sort of interesting way to think of yourself. But it's a way of refusing the idea of the single family home as the primary ideal. To say that I don't want to shovel snow or I didn't want to maintain my private home. I wanted to have the sort of collective or communal amenities of an apartment building and how to sort of reimagine those desires is something that's been sort of fundamental to my work to cast other narratives to present other forms of desire and ideals as primary as opposed to the ones that have been uh, particularly rehearsed like the one that desires the single family home that there are those for whom that's not the primary ideal and how do we make space for those types of narratives and a thinking that goes beyond uh, the sort of regimes of capitalist property ownership. Care and maintenance come in deeply in that way. And the way that I think almost Mabel was really sort of talking about the memorial and the collectivity of its design project. That if we think about blackness as that which enables us to tap into collectivity, to the notion of the swarm, to the notion of the hive, uh, that's undefined by a single entity. I think that that's something that blackness enables, that it enables that sort of um, attention to the swarm, uh, where we're thinking about collectivity as a practice, as a way in which to sort of reimagine living along the lines uh, that are against the single individual, but, a, but attend to the collective. And care really does happen in the collective. And if we think of something like an apartment building with its mass of apartment units, often narrated as uh, sort of isolating and detached, how can we imagine that space as a collective space of support and care? Despite the fact that maintenance is a serious material issue that, and it's lack in these spaces, where are there also forms of care that happen in those spaces? the ways that people look out their windows and attend to children, or the ways that in the hallways and in the elevators uh, sort of children are attended to also. So where can we find sort of care in that collective? Where do we see maintenance being simultaneously sort of elided and held, but also given and um, sort of perpetrated simultaneously? So I, I think care is in that collective, care is in that, and maintenance is in that, which the collective can provide, where we're moving away from the single individual, the single owner, potentially, towards ideas that are embrace multiplicity. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I, I think, um, yeah, I mean, I completely agree with Eva. The individual is just such a, a problematic, um, you know, and again, I mean, this is all coming at this question of property and the individual are coming up in the studio that I'm, I'm, I'm teaching. Um, and that's one of the key terms is property enclosure in the plantation. Um, you know, because the logic of liberal individualism is the enclosure 
of an individual away from its group, right? That's, you know, John Locke had said, I have property in myself. I am self-possessed. self-possessed. That is what the enslaved could not do because the enslaved were property, right? So they, they could steal away, but they couldn't, they didn't own themselves, right? And you literally had to buy yourself, right, in order to attain any notion of freedom. So freedom certainly in the West is sort of predicated on this idea of self-possession, right, and individuality. And yet the reality of how we survive, we don't survive as individuals, we survive in relationship to others, right? We, you know, somebody picks our food, some, somebody makes the chairs we sit in. So I, like that, 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 that veil of individual, it's just a complete myth. And I think this is why Cheryl Harris is so useful because she shows us how the investment of liberal individualism um, as whiteness is c- completely connected to property my rights, my house, my land, my White House, or as they said in, 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 on January, this is, this is my U.S. capital, um, you know, which negates the we of the people, <laughs> right? That was supposed to be what we were constituted as a nation first, and the nation then guarantees individual rights, but always in relationship to the collective. And I think the problem of property really and the way in which it functions within capitalism is highly problematic because you always want to be able to increase its value, right? And what has happened is historically, black people have been um, prevented at every single turn from being able to own anything. You know, and, and Ta-Nehisi Coates gets, you know, Ta-Nehisi says this incredibly well in the case for reparations. Like, as soon as I got something, it was taken away. We had a horse after reconstruction, but somebody wanted it, so they took it. Um, even today, these stories of people who own property, and it's just legion, I mean, it's all over the place, where black folks buy these houses, they fix them up, they bring in an appraiser to get it appraised. Now, if there is a black photograph or anything that indicates the owner is black, it will be valued as less than. And so what black people have figured out is let me just get my white friend Todd to come in and sit in the house. And all of a sudden, you know, this happened to a couple of Marin, the house was valued at 1.5 million as opposed to 650,000 just because Todd was sitting in the living room, right? So it shows you how value in capitalism is completely constructed on racial difference. And so property is highly problematic because they were all intertwined in how they're formed, you know, within, within modernity. And architecture is right up in there. It's not at all in that. And that example of the house is a perfect one. Thank you. So we want to give the audience an opportunity to ask questions because we could go all day. I mean, we <laughs> adore these guys. Um, does anyone have a question? Yes. Barbara. Hi. Um, Could you speak a little bit? <laughs> um, I guess this is a little bit moving away from the more academic, <laughs> the more intellectual side. I'm just curious. Um, coming from an outside perspective, um, I'm, I'm from Kenya, so born and raised in Kenya, and I came for undergrad here, and I came here now. And I'm curious. I think there's there's a there's a different. I guess like. Because I didn't really, I didn't grow up in the US. I didn't go, I didn't walk in, I didn't grow up in this space as a black woman. Mm-hmm. But I, the minute I kind of like stepped into this country, mm-hmm. I became a black woman. Mm-hmm. And for me, I think people also like kind of like look at me and be like, yeah, so what is the black experience? Especially after 2020. And I'm just curious, I feel like it's a lot. Mm-hmm. Personally, I feel like I think I'm. 
it's 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 very very intense dealing with it on a daily basis. But as five very strong black women <laughs> who have experience in this country, I'm curious like where do you find your peace and how do you mm. how do you find a moment I guess in time and now or where do you find the moments where you take a break from just wearing the muscle and wearing that mm. identity of the black woman and having that define your experience every single day and having people look at you. <laughs> Were you able to hear her question? I'm not sure you ever the question really passed Okay, good. Could you could you hear was, it? Was able to hear bits of it. Yeah. Yeah. Reiterate maybe the Yeah, you can reiterate here. Oh, sure. Brenda was um, speaking to, um, sorry, Barbara was speaking to uh, her experience as a Kenyan um, coming to America and feeling um, upon arriving in America the weight of what it means to be a black woman in America. But coming from a background outside of that understanding, she wondered um, what ways do we find and um, kind of manifest rest within ourselves when we uh, feel this constant pressure of these different histories that are kind of layered within black womanhood in the United States. Yeah. And Chris's. Yeah, no, I think that's a really, really excellent question. And, and, and maybe there, you know, maybe two ways of answering that is that I think, you know, racial regimes aren't specifically, the problem is that often the conversation around race in America gets coded as, again, universal and global. But actually, these are very specific histories to what happened here. Um, but I would say because of capitalism and because of colonialism and imperialism, you know, this, this problem of racial difference in, 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 and, and whiteness is a global problem to the degree of, to which, let's say, policing violence. In Nigeria last year, there was a huge pushback against the police because the police were protecting, they had completely the logics of the violence of the protection of property. That's why I prefer to use sometimes the terms whiteness and blackness to say that at that moment, you know, there was probably a, a, an elite that bought, has bought, bought into a kind of project of whiteness and property ownership. And to protect that, the police do a certain kind of work, right? Which corrupts them, which means that that violence is unleashed on the people. So, you know, that's a kind of a racial project that gets, you know, repeated um, even within the context of, of the African continent. I, you know, our, our lecture yesterday at St. Louis, there was a, a, a scholar from, I don't know what department he's in, Jeff Ward, you know, who told this example, exactly this point about how in, in South Africa, a kind of violence against a child at school, um, probably rendered by somebody who is black to a child, was replicating exactly the violence of apartheid, right? You know, so it's a systemic enactment of the, these kinds of violences, right? Um, so that whether one is a black person, white person, or whatever, it doesn't matter. It's the systemic enactment of the violence that, that, that is now persistent. So that's something to think about. And I, I would just say, um, in terms of modalities of coping, what has helped me is to try not to internalize it. Um, to see it again as the self, that there is something inherently like problematic about me, myself, because that is in our kind of modern experience of the world, which is why psychoanalysis emerges, right? To think about the self. Um, that is one way to, to do it, um, you know, that we internalize it and, and, and say it's a personal failing 
as opposed to seeing it somehow more external, right, and more systemically. And, and I have to say, understanding the systemic condition, which is not only professional but personal, particularly with my generation, right, as a civil rights baby, um, you know, it has helped have a kind of clarity, um, you know, so that I, I, I don't sort of internalize it in a, in a way that becomes detrimental to my well-being. The other thing is just, you know, call it as you see it. <laughs> and that helps. And having an amazing group of people around you that are friends that you can speak with and talk to. I have two girlfriends. We talk, we started this during the pandemic. One's a poet, one's an artist. And we talk every Saturday, every Saturday, kind of like, you know, and this week, what has driven you absolutely crazy? And it's just, <laughs> it's just great to then be able to sort of talk about these things with others. Yeah, I think the talking is, is so deeply important. And the, the speaking plainly and speaking openly in, in trusting and trust, trustful spaces. I think what you're saying about also being a Kenyan is really important, especially in coming to the United States and the ways in which you feel as though you're made black by coming here. And that happens quite often. We have a lot of these talks at Columbia in particular, when discourse around international students, for example, at a place like Columbia, doesn't necessarily take into account the fact that there are black folks who are international students, for example. That there's not a, a recognition of the fact that there are students from the UK, from Africa, from Canada, from the Caribbean, who are simultaneously international students, that they get sort of raced as black, American, exclusively, as though there is some monolithic notion of what constitutes a black person. Um, and so also being able to attend to specificity and depth and nuance and being able to call out the ways in which there is difference, to be able to attend to the difference, I think is really, really important. And to not be afraid to do that, to not be afraid to articulate differences within blackness and allow blackness to be read and understood and recognized and sort of talked about as being nuanced, being particularizing, um, that there are a range of specific experiences and lives and beings and ways of thinking and moving in the world, even as a black person, you know, to uh, not be afraid to articulate that and to have the space to do that and to feel comfortable and bold enough to do that even in academic spaces that seem to work against that to be able to talk about joy, to be able to talk about pleasure in the midst of also talking about blackness simultaneously as well. When we talk about the ways that we program our architectural projects even, and we think about use and think about um, the forms and types of projects that we pursue even academically as students, to provide space for those other forms of knowing and being that involve <coughs> pleasure, that involve joy also so that blackness is, is not rendered monolithic as only oppressive, as only subjugated, but also with greater depth and nuance. So being, being able to talk through that, I think is so important. I find joy in that in many ways. Um, as an architecture student proposing projects that were seemingly nonsensical, um, my thesis as an undergraduate architecture student was called the dumb dialectic. It was for a casino and a welfare center. It was about sort of playing with ideas of type, ideas of 
uh, service, ideas of use, and, and sort of working within contradictions, working within uh, the sort of depth and particularities of a specific community. Um, that Don't be afraid to charge forward with that as a student, as a thinker, particularly in the speculative domain of architectural thought and production that you're in. For me, those were spaces where I had a lot of fun and joy in the work and sort of making professors have to talk on the terms that I've established for the work. Um, that Those are spaces where I think are liberatory spaces and spaces where you can actually also find rest because of the joy in it, because of the pleasure in doing that work and the pleasure in exploring. Um, don't be afraid to do that. Thank you. I think that that was very insightful. I think I especially find it very like it's pretty useful to think about um, being in that space within the space of like an architecture studio and thinking outside of like the more like oh you're covering a topic on blackness or, or on your colonial experience like it has to be kind of like traumatic so mm-hmm. <laughs> I think mean, I never thought about how you can kind of like make it happy so mm-hmm. I really appreciate that perspective and I think yeah like the ties between what it means to kind of be black here versus what it means to be black in Kenya like that's without a doubt there's so many different connections and for me I see it as kind of a a reflection on this kind of a community that's, that was, that was, that's kind of like stayed constant, the relationships that have stayed constant throughout history. In the way that I think the black experience in the US, the way I've seen it, it's all about community. <laughs> that's, I see it as just like a, an, an instant bond, an instant connection that creates community and spaces that allow you to more or less be yourself and not have to act. And that's what I've also seen in Kenya, it's my experience growing up, is that if you if you more or less have a friend, your friend is also your friend's friend, and your friend is also your mom's daughter, your friend is also, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, your mom's aunt, like yours, like your mom's like niece. Like there's that, there's that instant relationship that, that breaks down that idea of individuality as, as more or less a separationist kind of mm-hmm. identity. So yeah, this, I mean, there's a lot of <laughs> very amazing conversations happening here, and I just want to say thank you for being in the space with us. And, yeah, thanks for hosting. <laughs> Thank thanks you, Barbara. Barbara. <laughs> um, and if there are any other questions. Thank you. And thank you to our guests. I guess we want to close on this last, um, I guess, action item um, advice for us as students. Many of us don't get to experience uh, racial questions in our core studios. And most of us here are in core studios just because the advanced studios aren't in the building right now. Um, how do you advise us questioning these issues or designing these issues in frameworks that are more about form or are more about things that may not necessarily answer the questions that we want to ask? Like how, I guess, is, is my question that I want to close with. I mean, I, th- I think we can start. It, can, should I answer? <laughs> Yeah, I was just going to say maybe we could just start uh, end where we started with the question of autobiography. Um, I, I think you can just bring your own experiences into your work, um, and I think as Ifa mentioned, you know, like looking at artwork, looking at how artists work and their methods and what they reference, um, 
you know, just finding works that speak to how you see space or how you want to make or how and incorporating them into your work um, at the same time that you're merging them maybe with a set of institutionally given, you know, kind of skills and protocols and, and ideas, because that then starts to at least temper it toward how you're beginning to understand. And that's always important. I mean, you know, any architect will say, you know, I'm always looking at stuff outside the field. I'm always bringing things into my work. So, you know, that just goes without saying um, regardless, but, you know, you could, I think you can be mindful of that and, and question that. And, and then again, as students, you, you have power. That's what I love about the memorial. Students, students started that project. You know, so if there are some things that you notice in your curriculum, and I know <laughs> your deans are going to hate you for saying <laughs> make Sunny Ball's life hard. <laughs> um, you know, just say, hey, this isn't working for me. Or, you know, can we start to have conversations about maybe how, you know, these introductory courses are taught? Yeah, that's, that's really important. Sharon Sutton said this to a group of students at a convened panel of sort of so-called student activists. You know, she was like, well, what do you really care about in terms of curriculum? What is it that you want to know and learn? What do you think constitutes an architectural education? What do you think you need to know? But I think also what's important for me in the midst of this is not to think of form as divorce and an attention to form pedagogically or curricularly. Not to think of that as divorce from these larger questions of uh, the sort of production of racial difference. That there is a politics in aesthetics. There's a politics to formal logics. And those are steeped in regimes that create and produce and recreate notions of racial difference. So when we're talking about points and lines and surfaces that in that seemingly so-called core education, there is a universalizing tendency that wants to abstract away from larger social or political uh, issues, even financial issues as well. So there are ways that I think that you can interrogate discourse around form, the production of form, the, even the sort of evaluation of form within the same discourse that we're having around right now about racial logics and regimes that produce ideas about racial difference. The ways that we talk about something being beautiful, the way that we talk about something being ugly or non-pleasing to the eye, the way that we talk about the logics of form are still implicated in the same discourse. So don't be afraid to tease out that language, to tease out that terminology, and to then seek its histories seek ways of bringing in ideas about certain forms and the way that they've been evaluated into the way that you think about the production of your own work and the way that you, are, that you really challenge even uh, the sort of questions of program, questions of use. How are those ideas circumscribed with what language that you can begin to pull out and tease out in order to explore modes of form making that are embedded with a certain knowing? embedded with a certain knowledge, embedded with a certain intent, even. So I, I would really sort of not think of an attention to form as divorced from these larger issues, but to call attention to that, to call that out, to not be afraid to talk through that and to question it throughout the process as you're moving through something like a so-called core studio. What constitutes a core? How is that defined and enclosed and circumscribed? So don't be afraid to interrogate those things while you're working on them. Thank you, Ife, and thank you, Mabel. Do you have any?
Thank you. I'm honestly just, it's been amazing having you guys here, and I'm so shocked that I'm speaking to you guys right now. And thank you, Sosa, for bringing me on this episode. And yeah, it was, it's been amazing. Thank you. I want to say thank you, Karis. Thank you, Ife. Thank you, Mabel. And thank you, audience, for joining us today for episode one of the, the podcast. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. <laughs> Happy. Thank you. See you next week, Ife, at your lecture on Thursday. Aw shucks. Aw shucks. <laughs> and then, <laughs> looking forward to being there with you all. And Mabel, please come. <laughs> I will. <laughs> I'll have a baby with me too, so. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. 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 We hope you enjoyed episode one.